This is Better Benefits, a podcast from the team at Brella Insurance. We're talking about how to use employee benefits to build a world where health hardships don't create financial burdens. If you're a broker or employer looking for fresh ideas and new products employees will actually use, this show's for you. Hi there, I'm Laura Cave, Head of Marketing here at Brella, and I'm here with my co-host, our Chief Revenue Officer, Mike Zerillo, for Better Benefits, episode number 12. With us today is Carol Harnett, a benefits industry expert, consultant, writer, and speaker. Today, she's the president of the Council for Disability Awareness. We are so excited to hear her take on the trends and opportunities in today's health benefits landscape. Mike, how are you today? And tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to get us connected to Carol. Hey, Laura, I'm great. Yes, yeah, this is definitely a discussion I've been looking forward to. Carol and I have known each other for many years, and not only is she one of the best people uh, I've come across over the years, she's also one of the brightest and, and most insightful. And I've had a chance to hear Carol speak in dozens of forums with brokers, employers, at company sales conferences, and I'm always amazed at how she can lure you into the discussion and, and then leave you thinking about things so differently. In fact, we re- recently reminisced about a company sales conference. We, we both attended 15 or so years ago now, and how Carol was the person who introduced me to this thing called Twitter. Oh, wow. And I remember a presentation like it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. I really remember it like it was yesterday and how back then she she tied the concept of how, you know, the shift and how we would consume information and and how that would impact employee benefits and of course she was she was spot on. So, anyways, our audience is in for a real treat today. That's awesome. Yeah, I I can't wait to hear what she has to say not only about employee benefits and how they're changing now, but also still where they need to change and where innovation is going to start to happen. Because obviously she's such a an early bird in spotting those trends. And I was also really excited for her to share a bit about what's going on with disability benefits. That isn't an area that we've covered on the show yet. And it's an important part of every employer's benefits package. Absolutely. So let's uh, introduce everyone to Carol. I met Carol when she was the National Disability and Life Practice Leader at the Hartford, and she's been a trusted consultant and advisor for multiple organizations and industry leaders. And today, as you mentioned, she's the president of the Council for Disability Awareness. Carol, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. And thank you, Laura. I am uh, so excited to be here. And you made me laugh. You know, it's interesting, right, when you hear the memories people have of you. And I was so surprised when Mike brought up the Twitter story. I'm like, wow, it's that's amazing that that's what stuck. What I must say, though, is as somebody who started as a scientist and wound up then moved into applied science, so I worked in a clinical setting and then got recruited to what we considered at the time the dark side of insurance. I, one of the things when I was at the Hartford, uh, we did a lot of different things, but because I'd spoken my whole career and was somebody who was, for lack of a better term, doing serial startups within the Hartford, I used to speak a lot throughout the country at, uh, and mainly the sales reps would be the ones who hosted me. And so I always have to go on the record and say, Mike Cirillo was my favorite salesperson of all time. He is smart and funny and diligent and just a real pleasure to work with. And obviously, he's become a friend over all these years. So thank you so much. I had to do a return intro, Mike. 
So people need to know that, that you're really great at what you do. I am blushing. Great. That's always my goal. But, uh, enough about me. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about you. You touched a little bit on, on your journey, but you know, I, I really think it would be great for our audience to hear a little bit more. So tell us a little bit more about your sort of journey within this world of benefits and, and really sort of you know, how, how you became so passionate about it. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. It's a twisted road, right? Because I said I started as a scientist. So my undergraduate degrees in biological chemistry and mathematics and my graduate degrees in physiology and biophysics. And I went from doing research to being recruited to work at the first Olympic satellite training program. And then because we associated with, so this is my introduction to benefits, with a local rehab hospital for our benefit structure, because the USOC actually wasn't providing us with that structure, I got pulled in, as did people from the area that I worked in, to actually work in the direct rendering of patient care and using science to help people improve clinically. And so, A, I got introduced to benefits because, by the way, I had an amazing benefits package through my employer, well, through our association with this health, this uh, rehab hospital. But what started to happen to us is we became a site that local physicians would send their patients to because we would apply the same principles to support our training of the Olympic athletes. We would train the community and we use the same principles. So they stopped sending them to PT and OT, physical and occupational therapy, and they started sending them to us. And of course, insurance didn't cover it. You know, so that was our first like, oh, well, sort of this is how insurance works. Isn't that interesting? And then we started an industrial medicine program using, again, the same principles we use to train Olympic and elite athletes to get people who what we started calling were industrial athletes to return to work. And that's when we ran into this concept of employee benefits and even accommodation of employees because the ADA had already been passed, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so we really got concerns that it was really hard to get people back to work. And we started to understand benefit structure and started to understand whether people had sick days and whether they had any kind of paid time off and how that worked. And frankly, because when you do work in healthcare or in the sciences, there is this joke that going to work for an insurance carrier is work going to the dark side. And the reason I got lured there, and I will use the word lured, was because I figured out if I couldn't influence people's benefits and their return to work as heavily as I wished I could, if perhaps I went and worked somewhere where I would have that opportunity to do it, I should do it. And so I had these opportunity to come and work in the insurance industry. And so that really was the beginning of it. And then after I left the Hartford and I was a consultant, I was asked to write the employee benefits column for what turned out to be more than 10 years for human resource executive. And it really just put me in head first into tracking every kind of benefit that was humanly possible, including like diversity and inclusion and considering that as a benefit. And so trust me, when you're writing, like, you know, when you think about it, I wrote something like almost 200 columns, you've got to look for material. So it was really fun. And that's what made me passionate about this topic that my poor parents, because they were so confused, you know, how did I go from these heavy duty science degrees you know, to working for an insurance carrier. So yeah, that was really how I got passionate about it. That's great. I feel like that's absolutely the way that you you end up getting hooked because you see that insurance can do so much good for people. And if, if we just solve some of the issues with it, right? 
Yeah, I, I agree. I was going to ask you, Carol, you, you know, do you find or if you think back to those those days, right, you were thinking about things differently. And, and I'm just curious, did the insurance carriers that you worked for, did you find that they were pretty open to those ideas or did you have to sort of lead them through that that process? I'm just sort of curious on how that that transition happened. I don't think you'll be surprised by my answer. And this is not meant to be a slam on the insurance industry, but it's a pretty conservative industry, you know, as financial services as a whole are, and rightly so, right? Because they're constantly assessing risk. That's the job of an insurance company is to assess and ensure risk. So I would, I would say I had to learn how to temper my message a little bit. And the thing I remember most once is for people who know me, I'm largely considered a very heavy optimist and uh, love this idea of brainstorming. And I had to, I think what working in an insurance carrier taught me was often people aren't prepared to hear the ideal situation. And you have to think back three to 10 steps, depending on the topic you're discussing, so that you can meet people where they are. I always remember I wrote a column once on whether it was possible to bring people to epiphanies. And I I interviewed a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. And (laughs) the rabbi actually said to me that you had to, he said, he was actually what was called a messianic Jew which is someone who has was originally Jewish and they actually believed in Jesus as the savior. I, I don't mean to make this religious, but we'll go in some place. And I said, oh, is that like Jews for Jesus? Which was absolutely the wrong thing to say, evidently, but he treated me kindly. And he said, no. And he explained the heritage of it. And he says, but look, here's the thing. He said, Jews for Jesus is too big a leap for Jewish people. He said, you have to meet people where they are. And that's why for the Messianic Jews that decided that they wanted to follow Jesus, they had to still hold on to their heritage. So I know that sounds like a really weird analogy, but that's what I learned when I got to the carriers is I had to stop and understand where they were and understand their risk tolerance and slowly introduce a concept at a time. And that has nothing to do with intelligence, right? It just has to do with people's willingness to consider changing. And, and the one thing we count in, can count in in life is that change will always happen, but it's also the thing so many people are afraid to do, to change things from where they were to possibly where they could go. Absolutely. From our first episode to now, I think we've talked about change in every single episode. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And I always thought it's the only thing you can count on is that things are going to change, right? And then sometimes you're in a great period, so you don't want it to change. But other times, like now, like I will fully admit, I'm pretty done with quarantine and pandemics. And but uh, you know, but it, you know, but it'll it'll change. You know, I just have to hang in there, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and I think the other the other thing, real quick, Laura, on change too is is I think the themes we've picked up on is. Many of our guests have talked about their courage to to be willing to change or to push and promote change. You know, Carol, I know that's part of your your DNA, but it, it's just you know I think it's all part of us doing our part to take the next step, build on where we are, and you know be okay challenging things that need to be challenged. Yeah, well said. There are certainly points I can think of actually a number of points in my career where I took what felt like a heavy risk 
considering the environment I was in, but I felt that, hey, this is what you're hired for, right? You're hired, you were hired for a specific reason. And if you stop doing what you think is important for the company and the audiences and clients that they serve, then you're not doing your job. And so you've just got to bear down and actually do what you think is important. I think the biggest thing I learned, which I've referenced a little bit already, is how do you stop and reshape your message so that it's a message that maybe the audience is ready to hear and it's only a little bit of a stretch instead of a leap. And that required me to learn a lot more about patience and self-reflection and most importantly, putting the audience first, whether it's an audience you're speaking to or the privilege of people who are listening to our conversation right now, or whether it's one-on-one. If you want, right, I always came back to something I figured out when I was pretty young, which is that if you want to be heard, you have to listen first instead of just coming in as though you have all the answers. And that's probably been one of the healthiest things. And I'm so appreciative that I learned that early on. That's great. Yeah, we hear that a lot about listening from our own uh, chief insurance officer talking about human-centered design thinking, going into insurance product design. And we've talked to a couple of companies in recent episodes who really focused on that consumer-centric approach to solving problems, not just creating insurance products that we think they need. So that's that's great. I wonder if you could, just switching gears a bit, tell us a little bit more about your work with the Council for Disability Awareness. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. So the Council for Disability Awareness was actually started the planning of it was was actually started when Mike and I were at the Hartford. Although I'm not 100% sure, Mike, you were there yet. But when I was at the Hartford, Dick Mucci, who ran the Group Benefits Division, was one of a group of leaders. Actually, isn't he associated with Brella? I'm just realizing. He is. He's an advisor. <laughs> He's done in the episode. Episode four is, is his episode. I love Dick. But he roped me in. He, they had decided it, around the year 2000, both group carriers and individual carriers of disability insurance. So obviously everybody listening to this understands what that is. Income protection insurance, STD, short-term disability, long-term disability, individual disability was more than 50% of revenue on the group side was already being driven by consumers. And on the individual side, while you would think 100% is driven by consumers, in both situations, the carriers were never talking to the end user. And now they realize, oh my goodness, they actually are holding the purse strings. And the projection in 2000 was this idea of voluntary benefits was really going to take off. And what did that mean? So really industry leaders got together with this idea of starting a nonprofit whose focus would be on how do you speak directly to consumers, people who work, and educate them about the importance of ensuring their income, protecting their income. And then how do you speak to employers and financial advisors and benefits consultants and even the media about how to take our learnings and take what they're trying to accomplish with those same end users and teach them what we've learned. So I actually was on the ground floor and then, you know, fast forward to about six years ago and was approached about taking on the role as president. So Really, that's our role is we twofold is really education. And then we have a very active research arm as well. That's led by somebody, actually, Mike, I don't know if you know that somebody we used to work with at the Hartford as well, Fred Schott, 
who used to work with me in consulting analytic area, runs our research efforts. Yep. I remember Fred well. Very sharp person. Great, great mind in this space. Yes. Yes. His nickname at the Hartford was the professor, and that still continues today. That's great, Carol. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's actually a good sort of springboard into another question we, we wanted to just get your perspective on. And, you know, we started the Better Benefits podcast to have this larger conversation around how better benefits could actually improve people's lives. And I'm, I'm curious, what do you see today that makes you, whether it's the work you're doing at, at CDA or whether it's just your sort of view of the, the broader landscape, what makes you optimistic that better benefits can actually solve some of the challenges that we're seeing today? Well, I've, I've always seen the power of benefits, right? You know, I, I came from a, a family. My mom ultimately became a school teacher, but she was a stay-at-home mom for a, a good part of my growing up years. And so my dad was the major income earner. And believe it or not, in the industry he worked in, it was, there were benefits, they were very limited, and they were specifically around health insurance. And so even as a really young child, I understood this concept that my father had health insurance, but they didn't cover family health insurance. So we had our own health insurance. And my mom, who had had an unusual kind of early history with some health issues with her eyes when she was a child, had a really vivid memory of the importance of going to really good doctors. And she had to have a couple of surgeries, which ultimately were successful. But her parents got her to, at that time, was called New York Eye and Ear, which was one of the premier eye hospitals in the, in the country, if not the world. So I grew up in a really weird way with these parents who really valued benefits. And when I did get my first job, I think my parents were more darn excited about the benefit structure I was in than anything else. And so I am optimistic about it. I'm both, I'm at an unusual place right now in that I'm both my normal optimist, but I've also got a little bit of concern. And so my optimism is around this idea that benefits can be personalized or customized, right? We're hearing this all the time now that we need to give people choice. And I think a lot of this is being driven certainly by surveys of employees around what they would like around benefits, but it's also being driven by factors way outside of benefits. It's the idea of when you think about it, you know, television moved from literally a, you know, either you turned your TV on or most of us, you know, had cable and you select these packages And then this concept of DVR came along and because I'm old enough that I remember this evolution, you know, and then for me, like the lightning change with television, which I just, it's not that I don't like television. I just am not a snob. I just didn't have a lot of time available to do it was on demand. On demand was a revolution, not only for me, but for so many people, because I could watch what I want when I want, right? And now we're all streaming and, you know, this is just a whole world of customization. So I think that's great. And that obviously then translated into benefits. So people or, you know, most people now aren't me. They didn't grow up where their very first job, their employer paid 100% of their benefits costs. Can you imagine? Like, that's how I'm like, oh my God, I am totally aging. Right. Cause I, I didn't, by the way, I didn't have that for long, but I did first get hired. Healthcare was one of the last industries to start to have you contribute to your benefits, if not pay for all of them. And although I did have through my first employer a voluntary STD plan, I will tell you that I remember the guy coming and buying it, all of that. But um, 
So here's what I'm excited and concerned about. I love the idea of personalization and customization. I get concerned, and I think that can really better people's lives, right? Because then you understand what you need and understand what you want. But I think, frankly, in my own life and writing about benefits and the speaking and writing I still do around benefits, and then the work we do at the CDA, what I've learned is no matter how educated people are, they don't always make the best choices. And, you know, as somebody who had to write and analyze benefits for more than 10 years, I look at products and I know I'm going to get shot for this in a minute, but, you know, I looked at products like vision benefits and dental benefits, which were, were pretty standard, you know, something that employers always offered, often paid for. And now, of course, they're much more, they're either part of a concierge program where you pick which benefits you want. But the structure of them has not changed since the 1960s, right? You know, so some of them have gotten slightly better, but most of them have $1,000 caps. And and when you look at the premium versus the benefits and typically how people go, it's not always the best financial choice for people. But, you know, they do much better if they selected, you know, voluntary short-term disability than if they, because the cost versus the return, if you have to file for it, is much more significant. And so what I worry about is this idea of these cadre of benefits, right, that have developed and people don't always make poor choices. And so they'll choose pet insurance over disability insurance. And for me, like I was once asked by a group of HR leaders to write a letter to their employees, tell them how I would pick benefits. And I told them, I was like, look, here's the bottom line. You want to choose the best health plan design that you think you're going to use and that you can afford. And I'll talk about that in a second. The second is you definitely have to protect your income because, you know, if you're a female and you're going to have a baby, you know, you probably should make sure you have a short-term product at minimum. And then, you know, income replacement in retirement. If in theory you want to retire, you should probably start trying to figure that out now and taking advantage of 401ks and 403bs. And so, you know, that had me worried. But now when I let's get to health insurance, because I know a lot of your interest and a lot of your audience's interest is around health, health care, the idea of health care, right? You know, so the Affordable Care Act comes along and people were surprised that I was a proponent of it. I was actually hired by some health insurers to actually lobby in DC. So people can't always put this together, but believe it or not, there were health insurers that really wanted to lobby and support the idea of the Affordable Care Act. They had figured out ways that they could afford to do it. And one of the things people don't realize is it's the only major piece of legislation in the history of the United States that was passed and never amended. And so while there were many of us that were proponents of this idea of trying to ensure most people, not everyone, because we're not like most countries, we just really didn't have this opportunity to change the parts of the law that really probably needed to be changed. Because unfortunately, the tenor of DC is that compromise is now seen as a sign of weakness. So what does that mean? Where is the opportunity if it's going to continue to be challenging to modify how we're offering healthcare in the United States. And frankly, it's a lot of it's products like you're doing and it's other products because here's where we're headed with personalization in medicine. Medicine is absolutely being personalized, whether people want it or not. And there's a lot of examples I can use, but the ones that get the most headlines is oncology, cancer. And so there's all these targeted therapies now, right? Because we all either have had cancer or know somebody who's had cancer. And where people immediately think, oh my goodness, I hope they don't have to have chemo and I hope they don't have to have radiation. And I wonder if they're going to have to have surgery. And 
what does all of that mean? And so we've got this amazing opportunity that health researchers, medical researchers, physicians, including physician scientists, are developing these targeted therapies. Well, what's the challenge? You know, the challenge is that a lot of health insurers are reticent to pay for that, or they're even reticent to pay for testing that in the long run, and actually even in the short run, can save them a lot of money. So for example, there's an amazing company that was a startup a number of years ago called Foundation Medicine. They have been purchased by a much bigger company. They have FDA-approved technology that takes solid cancer tumors and does genetic testing of it, tells the physician, the oncologist, specifically what are the absolute best treatments available for this, What are some treatments you consider that might not get the effect you're looking for? And oh, by the way, here's a list of every clinical trial in the world that matches this genetic tumor. And so, in fact, that might be the very best option for your patients. And oh, by the way, there's no cost to a health insurer for that because the trial pays the cost of particularly the drugs and usually some of the testing. Yet, Foundation medicine almost always is helping patients in the appeal process as they're immediately denied. And I think someday health insurers are going to be forced to change this attitude about fighting targeted medicine and traditional medicine, which ultimately, when you look at the research studies, people do much better. So I see a huge opportunity. I talk about better benefits around companies either looking at their current product, and trust me, I understand about insurance filings. And so this can be more complicated than we really want to think about. So maybe there's yet again, another product we have to think about, or think about how to morph products, where we can help bridge the gap for people who are dealing with conditions. Well, it's obviously, it's not just cancer, it's multiple sclerosis, it's, you know, a whole cadre of what are becoming much more common benefits or common conditions, right? Cancer is depending on whether you're male or female, one or two or one or three of us are going to wind up in that situation can get much better outcomes so that they can get the $5,000 foundation medicine test paid for, you know, instead of having to pay that out of pocket or whether they can get a targeted therapy versus traditional chemotherapy, which is going to let them continue to work and live a, a relatively pretty pretty normal life, not like some minor side effects, but nothing great compared to, you know, a, a chemotherapy approach that might take them out of work, you know, episodically or for a closed period of time. So for me, personalization is amazing. And I love the idea of personalized benefits, but how are we going to do a better job of educating people to make better and wiser choices And then from a health insurance perspective, how are we going to help people get to the treatment that is ultimately less expensive and gets, gives them better outcomes? You know, I think about people who are in narrow networks, which a lot of people on this phone, you know, know that that's an option some employers are offering. And these narrow networks are not always made up, you know, the best places that you necessarily would want to go to. And how do we get people at minimum? Like I think about Tom Emmerich from Walmart, who was the global benefits leader at the time, who pioneered this concept of centers of excellence. And so when he people worked at Walmart, when Tom was there, you had you were supposed to be a person who's going to have a transplant, or you were going to have, you know, there was a specific list of conditions. You'd get sent to Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic, everything paid to get somebody to weigh in 
and say, hey, you know, you don't actually need, which I was shocked, a third of people didn't need the transplant, you know, so you don't even need a transplant. Here's just the care you need. So people actually came back and they could go back to their narrow network with direct consultation from a place like Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic. So anyway, I'm going to pause because I know I'm like a railroad, so train on a railroad. That's great. My my brain is spinning. There's so much <laughs> that you just said. Yeah, I just wanted to say that you're right on about the personalization piece. Not only are we personalizing our benefits, like Brella, for example, you can choose the level of payout that you want for a moderate condition a severe condition, a catastrophic condition, so that it matches up with your cost sharing responsibility and minimizes your premiums, right? So you can like figure out what's right for your budget and what's a good complement to your health plan and have some coverage just for that, you know, out of pocket responsibility that more and more families carry today with, with even when they have great health insurance. So there's that piece, which is, is a positive way to personalize something, but When you're talking about personalized medicine across a massive range of conditions and the insurance carriers having to figure out how to cover this, I think the point you made about about the efficiency of it, though, is really important. I mean, we have this one great benefit in the health space that the more efficient thing is the healthiest outcome, right? And if we can get that right the first time, then we save ourselves money and the person is healthy, (laughs) Right. And they like have less trauma, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not just a moral obligation. It's also good for the employer business, for the payer, for the patient's pocketbook. Like this is a win, 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 win. If we can figure out how to do this. And so, so that's, that's something to be excited about, but I hear you on the, the sort of scariness or concern about the complexity of doing that well, that's that's a huge challenge for sure. I wondered, I mean, speaking of challenges, I was wondering, I know you guys have done some research on the impact of COVID because like that was happening in January 2020, which feels like a lifetime ago. And now we've got COVID on top of it. So how does how does that throw a wrench in things or does it create some new opportunities? You know, it probably does both. And so, yeah, the Council for Disability Awareness has been doing research on COVID since April of last year, which is kind of amazing, right? And how it happened, actually, was it sort of started with me indirectly. I got a text message from the federal government, which, of course, now it's scamming. You're like, is this really real? You know, and so I went out, but I was asked to be a participant in something called the Household Pulse Survey which the government has done for a pretty long time, but they wanted to do, and they are still doing, a survey of the American population and how you're doing with COVID, specific to a few questions. And so once I figured out it was real, I agreed to do it. So for four weeks, I did it. And it, we were, you know, we actually were able to, Fred Schott, who runs our research area, actually reached out to the government. We actually get direct access to their micro database. And we started following some of the major questions that they're following, which is not going to shock anybody. But at the time we started reporting on it, it was new, which is they asked you if you felt anxious or depressed and have tracked that over time. They asked you whether you were postponing or avoiding medical care. And a recent question they've asked, because the questionnaire has morphed a little bit over time, is are you thinking or have you already applied for social security disability insurance benefits? So think about that. I was like, oh my gosh, of all things they'd ask, SSDI. 
And so what we're finding is, and now is well known, you know, the normal in the surveys that line up with this prior to COVID, normal American population, about 10% of people reported anxiety and depression at any given time when we're now at 40%. So this is real. That's getting a ton of coverage. I personally think without a lot of practical solutions that really address this. Secondly, and, and this is really worrisome to us, is people are indeed either avoiding or postponing care. And actually a letter was sent by the 120 recognized cancer. I keep coming back to cancer, but there's so much going on with it. Cancer centers across the country just wrote a a letter to President Biden based on hardcore research that there's a couple of considerations. One is that in many, many states across the country, people being treated for cancer and other chronic conditions are not getting the COVID vaccine first as the CDC had recommended. And so they're at really high risk and they're dying much more quickly. So if you want to stay selfish in the insurance industry and the advisor industry and the employer industry, you unfortunately are have already paid life claims for people who have passed away around COVID, including for people with cancer. But the other challenge is that people selfishly, again, it's impacting our industry, both disability life and health or and including health insurance as well is we see people are not going for cancer screenings. So it actually falsely appears as though fewer people in the United States right now have a new cancer diagnosis. And the real worry that we have first on a, you know, a, dis- a health insurance perspective and then on a disability insurance perspective is when these people are found, they're going to be much farther along in their diagnosis. And that, as an industry, we have to be really concerned about And then the other thing we're tracking closely is the COVID long haulers, which as if people on this, I think most people are starting to become aware of it because the general media has started covering this topic. There appears to be, and we're not clear in the percentage yet, but there appears to be a minimum of 10% of the population that gets a COVID diagnosis. By the way, whether they had symptoms or not when they had COVID are now are reporting brain fog, they're reporting neurologic problems, they're reporting cardiac issues, and so on. We have no idea yet the long, those short, intermediate, and long-term effects that this is going to have on our industry, both on the individual and group side, both in health insurance, disability insurance, and life insurance are probably the most targeted areas. It's separately on the property and casualty side, I think this is going to morph business interruption insurance which has largely claims have largely been denied because it's businesses that had to shut down because of COVID, not because of physical damage. Yet some judges are not allowing right now insurance carriers to do denials. So obviously there's an appeals process going on. And I think that business is going to have to morph as a result of this as well. So COVID's we are not even 100% sure yet on how big this is going to continue to be for this, these industries within insurance. Yes, it's a really good point. I think the conversations we've had in some of the prior episodes, Carol, have been more so, you know, how did COVID impact 2020 and sort of the immediate view of it here in 2021. But you bring up really interesting things that we should all be thinking about looking forward. And and although much of it is still a bit unclear, they're certainly the right topics to have on the radar. So thanks for that. So Carol, we always end with a nosy question about your bookshelf. And I'm curious, is there a book or a resource that's had a big big impact on you personally or professionally that you think everyone should read? That's a great question. I will give you two answers. The first is I find myself reading books less often 
and white papers and research much more frequently, including an hour understanding at the CDA, the Council for Disability Awareness, to understand how to best communicate with people and ultimately change behavior. I find that I get more current information. And frankly, our whole strategy for 2021's communication is based on analyses that were done of the both Democratic and Republican presidential campaigns and how people were messaged to. And I'm happy to share that resource because it's a it actually crosses over to benefits in our industry because it turns out it gave a lot of insight as to how do consumers who, by the way, hate being called consumers, they also hate being called workers. They only want to be called working people and they don't want to be referred to by their class. But they want to, basically, they, I, I learned the concept of sell the brownie, not the recipe, which we're horrendous at in this industry, horrendous. So I will happy to share that. But I would also encourage people to think more broadly about where they read, including, of course, I started as a scientist, but I will tell you the Journal of the American Medical Association and New England Journal of Medicine, worth taking a look at every week. But secondly, I did really think about books and my, uh, there's a book that's been around for a while and it's called Blue Ocean Strategy. Actually, when I was at the Hartford, I was giving a presentation at a not too, not too painful place. I used to have the privilege of presenting at uh, Ski Spectacular, which is uh, Disabled Sports USA event in Breckenridge, Colorado. And I was the part of the event <laughs> that would make the, the brokers and benefits consultants who attended had not have to pay as many much in taxes because I did CE presentations. And someone came up to me afterward and they said, I love what you're thinking. I love what you're doing. You need to read this book, Blue Ocean Strategy. And he gave it to me. And the concept is, if you're not familiar with the book, is well worth reading still today. Actually, I pulled it out and looked through it again. And it's the most basic of concepts. And the idea is we often sit in an industry like insurance and benefits where It's always about how do you retain business and how do you, or how more importantly, how do you grow your business? And really we're fighting in what the blue ocean strategy authors would call a red ocean. Because as you know, particularly Mike, you know, firsthand, we don't really grow benefits and we don't really sell more total benefits in the United States. We just swap clients, particularly on the group side. And so the concept is how do you swim to the blue ocean where there is no there is no blood in the water where people haven't done it so how do you help people get access to personalized medicine in conjunction with their health plan without going broke and there's a real opportunity there so rather battle it out you know here where we are how do you swim to a place where there's opportunity to you know innovate create useful products and services that meet an actual need expressed by your ultimate end user. And then frankly, ultimately, you you have this opportunity for new income and, and to make more money. And so I say Blue Ocean Strategy is worth revisiting. And there's so many people who are cult-like about me about Blue Ocean Strategy. There's, you know, LinkedIn groups that are around Blue Ocean Strategy. And so anyway, it's a recommendation from me. That's awesome. That's great. Thank you for that. I'll definitely include a link and I'd love to include some links to some of the research that you mentioned. We'll put that in the show notes for the episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. I did want to, that's, I remembered another point I did want to make, Okay, which is this in April of last year, to your point, it seems like a hundred years ago, when they surveyed people about benefits, 
there were two benefits that got listed that people absolutely said, oh my gosh, I realized I really need this, this insurance. And it was disability insurance and life insurance. So there was an enormous spike in the number of people with in, not just interest, but intent to buy. Well, the PS is we get to the fall and do people actually buy the coverage? Absolutely not. Growth has been flat to negative. <laughs> with the exception of one carrier on the individual side, American Fidelity had a 15% increase in individual disability sales, but a major, major carrier on the individual side actually was negative, And that actually skewed a lot of the results. So realize as optimistic as we can get about benefits, there's brief windows where people understand why these products exist, but ultimate execution and buying is still really, really low. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with how we communicate with people. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe also the cost. Absolutely. And how we explain trade-offs. Right. You know, we, the CDA did a survey, a consumer survey, and we actually ran a trade-off scenario and it was fascinating to watch what people would actually pick one over another and how they ranked and, and desired certain types of benefits. It would not be what a professional advisor would point them toward, which is always concerning. Well, Carol, we're out of time, but I am so glad that you were able to join us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for sharing a little bit of an insight of how you get your early trend insights by reading the white papers and the research. I'm definitely going to have to follow suit. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your perspective with our audience. Super grateful. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm I'm honored and flattered to be invited. So I hope I have a chance to talk with you again in the future. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Mike, let's let's summarize. We have heard so much that's so interesting, and there's so many paths we could go down. What's standing out to you? Well, see, I told you, you 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 finish a conversation with Carol, and the thought provoking discussion is some of the best that I've encountered. You know, first thing that sticks out for me, and it's a great reminder for the good work that the Council for Disability Awareness does. I grew up in the disability space. So if you haven't given them a look or it's been a while, you know, maybe treat yourself to, to doing that. They're doing great work. And, and obviously, disability insurance is, is such an important part of the overall benefits package. But the other thing that I, I thought good was the book recommendation, right? The Blue Ocean Strategy. I've read that. And I think um, it resonated with me just because, you know, we're, we're really trying to do some things differently here and find ourselves right now swimming in that, in that blue ocean. So, you know, if you uh, want to know more about that, if you're a broker or an employer listening and, and how, you know, Brella is out in the blue ocean, give us a holler because uh, we're doing some cool stuff on that front. How about for you? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciated so much the nuance that Carol brought to the discussion of personalization. That's been a theme and it's something that most people are aware of. I come from digital media where we've been doing personalization from Web 1.0. And so it's not a new idea, but it's definitely just now, I think, starting to happen both on the benefits design side, plan design side of things, as well as in 
medicine itself. And that nuance is something that's really important, particularly on the health benefits strategy side of things, because it creates extra complexity that's going to be really important that we find ways to manage so that people can actually avail themselves of an opportunity to have a more tailored, more effective, more cost efficient, you know, care plan that results in a better health outcome. I mean, that has to be the goal. And so finding ways to make that accessible and affordable for within the employer plan and for the employee is really important. The other thing I thought was really important is what she explained about the impact of COVID. You know, it's not just the cost of treating COVID cases now that we're facing. It's the long-term after effects. It's the mental health impact of COVID and it's all the delayed care and what that will do for prognosis if not catching things early enough, delayed screenings. And so, you know, we've heard this before from some other folks that, you know, we're absolutely seeing lower utilization in the past year and 2020 was all, you know, peaches on the, you know, utilization side of things. But now we've got to plan for that future where utilization is higher. So I think that's, that's a really important trend to be watching out for. Yep. Agreed. It was a great discussion, Laura. Number 12 in the books. In the books. I love it. Well, if any of this discussion resonated with you and you want to get involved with us here at Brella, email me at sales at joinbrella.com. As we say in every episode, we're working with some of the best and brightest benefit brokers in Texas right now and their employer clients. So give us a shout if we can help you bring Brella to those employer groups off cycle. Visit joinbrella.com slash podcast for notes from today's show. And if you liked the episode, share it with a colleague. This helps us spread the word. Be sure to subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss our next episode. And that's a wrap. This is Laura Cave and Mike Zarillo from the Better Benefits Podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.